I was studying to be a minister of the gospel, my student churches was a circuit of two close-by wooden churches in the inner slum areas of Melbourne. For seven years during the late 1950s and the early 1960s, the people of those inner slum areas of Newmarket and Ascot Vale were my parish. From the age of 18 through to 25, I lived and worked among some of Melbourne's worst slums while I attended theological college and university prior to my graduation and ordination. We had taken the decision to leave our ministry at Asker Vale and Newmarket after seven years and to head off to the United States of America. The last service had come on the Sunday prior to Christmas. As I mentioned to you last week, President John F. Kennedy had recently been assassinated and our visa applications of the United States Consulate had been caught up in the turmoil of his assassination. The Consulate had promised us that all would be ready for us to leave to the United States of America. We would be leaving on the SS Arcadia from Sydney at Circular Quay on Boxing Day. We didn't know on that day just how wrong his assurances would be. However, buoyed up by his assurance, we came to the last service of our last Sunday as we finished seven full years of ministry as pastor to the slums. I'd preached more than 670 sermons in the two little wooden churches that were my parish. If I'd placed those sermons end to end, I would have been speaking to those people for more than 225 continuous hours. I had told them everything there was to say for their spiritual welfare and personal growth. Nothing remained to be said. And so just as we were to start our eighth year, our final service was to be a celebration of Christmas. The young people, including the boys I'd had on parole and probation, were going to lead the service as their own tribute to the meaning of Christmas. Every night before Beverly and I went to sleep over the period of our married life, we had prayed for the people of those two congregations. We had prayed for them individually and we prayed for them collectively. We prayed for them in their troubles and we prayed for them in their triumphs. We prayed for those in times of sadness and grief and those who celebrated the joy of new birth or success with a job. To be quite frank, we felt satisfied with the last seven years of ministry in the slums. We had developed the youth work quite remarkably the Sunday schools had grown, tripled in size. There had been a dramatic increase in membership. The churches had been able to go ahead with their long-cherished dreams. For the first time in 40 years, we had re-established a full-time ministry. We had purchased new property. We had purchased a new manse for the minister. The morale of the church was at the highest peak for 40 years. And throughout that period of time, of course, I'd had the responsibility of 104 young men on probation or parole. They had been sentenced by the courts of the land. Some of them had finished prison terms. Others, because of our interest, didn't go to prison, but for a period of probation under our oversight in the hope that they would find character and meaning in life and turn from their old ways. We'd seen a few miracles in the lives of some of those young men. Those for whom car stealing was a regular habit stole no more. Big Bazza, who had knifed a man to death, was still big and powerful but gentle as a lamb these days as he read the scriptures in church and helped lead as vice president of the youth club. Now so close to Christmas the final service was to be one in which many of the people with whom we had worked over the years was going to share. They had been preparing for it for several weeks. 
The hymns were beautifully presented on a large screen over which was superimposed a picture of the manger scene. The carols rang out into the night air and the candles flickled, flickered around the platform. There was a gasp from the congregation as someone caught a sight of strange silhouettes outside the stained glass windows. It was unmistakable. There in the rollicking motion were three camels bearing kings to the manger scene. On the platform inside the church was a large manger scene and many of the people were taking part in a live tableau. Harry McEwen, the old regimental sergeant major from the Royal Marines of the British, was there with his wife, always cheerful, but he was rather teary now. The time had come to say goodbye. Mr. and Mrs. Cheap were there. You remember them, Cheap by name and Cheap by nature? And they were... Well, I guess Mr. Cheap took a lot of effort to lay aside his dressing gown, which he used to wear every day, and leave his beloved black and white television set and get dressed to come out of church of a night. But the Cheaps had come. They said they would. They said they owed us a great deal as we helped them shift from their little slum before it was demolished into one of those new high-rise housing commission tenements. Boy, the hours we spent with the Cheap family were not to be calculated. But somehow their family life had, well... Improved? I guess so. Nancy Bankstown was there, sitting on her organ stool and peddling away the small organ for all it was worth. Oh, goodness, her life had nearly ended in tragedy when, unable to take the pressure of life anymore, she had fled into the city. You remember I found her when I banged on the door in the People's Palace. She had taken the overdose of sleeping tablets. We saved her life. It was only remarkable intervention, really, that saved her that night. And to think I nearly missed thinking of where she might have been. But tonight, she didn't look depressed at all. She was full of life as she led the music at the pedal organ. Harry the pieman was there with his wife. He'd been our church treasurer throughout my term of office and now he had accepted the gift of our golden cocker spaniel Rex. He was going to be the new owner of Rex because we were going to the United States. In fact, all of my old friends were there about whom I've mentioned. Sheila Burt, the flirt, with her fourth husband, Denzel. <laughs> Let me correct that. That's what she told me. He was to be his fourth husband. You remember I caught her in the hairdressing salon on the order of the morning of the wedding and I found out that Sheila Burt was actually marrying Denzel, who would be her fifth husband. I mean, she didn't count the first one because he had suicided. And there was Denzel still with her. She was wearing her bright red dress and poor old Denzel was looking as meek as a fourth, fifth husband should look. The thing that thrilled me was the service was led by young men who had grown up under our ministry, Eddie and Joe and Ron. They were sterling fellows. We had the closest of friendships with those guys as we worked together in the boys club and the youth club and the young adult fellowship and so on. And gradually the story of Christmas began to unfold as various characters came on stage dressed for the part. Up in the roof at the back of the church was one of the lads who was an apprenticed electrician. He was working the spotlight. You know, he had a most ingenious situation set up. The only spotlight we could find anywhere around the slums was a 24-volt spotlight, which had come off a water cruiser along the Maribyrnong River. And, of course, if you had plugged that into the main, it would have just blown the bulb. However, the apprentice electrician had rigged up a one-bar radiator on the roof had taken the wires from the end of the long red coil and he simply said to me, by the time the radiator burns off most of the 240 volts, there'll be just about 24 volts left and that's enough to run the spotlight without blowing the globe. And so it was. I believed him. 
but I wondered how I could explain that to the fire commissioners on that hot summer night when we were burning a single bar radiator up on the roof and running a spotlight from off it. And of course, there was Joseph, the husband of Mary. He was played by Big Bazza, the guy who had murdered the guy in the pub when he was only 14. He brought a very delicate Mary into the manger scene. Big Bazza had worked in the slaughter yards for years until he had murdered that man, but now converted, he was going steady with his girlfriend. He was totally a different person. He gave the impression that Joseph was tall and muscular and strong and tough with a thick beard around his square-cut chin. You could just believe Jesus growing up strong in a family like this. He carefully ushered the Virgin Mary into a place beside the manger. Mary was being played by Debbie, who was a, a very sweet, quiet girl. I'd heard the story that during the rehearsal, someone had suggested that the extraordinarily beautiful Ginger Taylor should play the part of Mary. Ginger, who was one of the cheap family, had recently married Nick as a party. She had carefully worked out which young person in the community had the most money, and the young son of that Maltese fruit seller who drove round in his white convertible became her target. He was the wealthiest young man in the slums. And Ginger Taylor had set out quite calculatingly to have Nick fall in love with her. And to that end, she went to the Roman Catholic Church where she might meet him and promptly undertook a course and became a Catholic. And it was in the youth club one night when one of the lads suggested that Ginger play the part of the Virgin Mary. But Big Bazza turned round with a snap. It wouldn't be right. She was no virgin and she never was. Another of other boys made similar comments about Ginger Cheap. Big Bazza just took up the cry. The cry. It just wouldn't be right to have the likes of her playing the Virgin Mary. You really need a good girl, a pure girl, to play Virgin Mary. And so it was that the lovely and shy Debbie took the part and received the commendation from everybody. I mean, I didn't know much about these things, but it seemed to me in that youth club, everybody knew everybody else's business and who was having what on with whom. The shepherds took their places. I recognised that beneath the gowns and the beards, the figures of some of the more notorious boys that had caused trouble throughout the whole slum community. Joe, who had featured strongly in the battle against the shopkeepers up in Union Road, he used to have the bad habit, you might remember, of smashing the panes of glass in telephone boxes. He was the guy that pushed the matches and the superglue into every Yale lock and jammed the locks of every shop in Union Road. He was now a wise man. There was Scab. Old Scab had once stolen my motorbike after the youth club program was caught by the police up Mount Alexander Road riding without the lights on. I'll tell you what, those shepherds were a rum lot, not only in the Ascotvale Church, but I guess they were pretty much like the shepherds that were there at the first Christmas. I mean, shepherds didn't have a good reputation then or now. There's a lot of reality in those shepherds as they came in around our church manger scene. When the time came for singing We Three Me, Kings of the Orient Are, the camels that had passed the stained glass windows in silhouette had apparently stopped outside the church because three wise men, dressed in traditional garb as kings from the east, came in the side door bearing their gifts for the Christ child. Leading the march was Robert Selvado, who for the first 20 years of his life had been unable to walk because of polio and whose mother had massaged his limbs night and day. And there he was as a king. 
with his arms extended, carrying a box of gold, dressed in the garb of a fabulous eastern king, walking unaided, without leg irons, down the aisle. There was a miracle walking there in the lives of Robert Salgado. And the second wise man was Willie the Weed, who was bearing some frankincense to give to the Christ child. Willie the Weed with beard attached to the struggling moustache he was trying to grow on the top of his lip. He'd been a tall kid who had been adopted by too much older short people who had that enormous chip upon his shoulder about that adoption. And yet here too was a walking miracle that night. I remember back in the Sunday school hall some years ago when he played that lame boy who had been healed in the drama we produced and his whole life changed simply because he realised that he was a nobody who could become a somebody. And bringing up the rear that year was the third wise man bearing his gift of myrrh. He was, in fact, our wise man. He was the only intellectual we had in the slums. He had completed his Master of Engineering degree at Melbourne University along with me and now he was completing his PhD. Jim Ford had been the young man with whom I had shared my lunch times at university every day discussing a different phrase in the Apostles' Creed and what was the implications of the Christian faith for us. His too was a remarkable story of conversion and following his baptism he grew in faith and commitment. He was to become an outstanding church leader and still is a church leader to this day, Dr. Ford. As I sat there that night and saw the three wise men coming, singing the ancient carol and kneeling before the Christ child, I realised that beneath their robes lay three walking miracles, some of the fruit of our years of service as pastor to the slums. By now, I had graduated from the university and from theological college. I'd been ordained into the ministry. By now I'd been married and three years later I'd become a father of a little daughter. Now was the time to leave and that last night before Christmas I saw all round me in the hundreds that packed that church the fruit of my ministry as passed for the sons. <laughs> and I still haven't given up putting on those little Christian demonstrations at Christmas. I mean what we do in an Australian Christmas at Darling Harbour with one and a half thousand singers and dancers and real live camels and shepherds and all that great taboo telecast all over Australia every year is still much the same as we did. Except in those days we had sheep made out of cotton wool instead of real ones. And our wise men were only silhouettes against the stained glass on their camels, not real camels. As I sat there that night I realised that a pastor's job in the slums or anywhere else is not assessed by new buildings and by statistics, but in the changed lives of people. And there singing carols with me were the changed lives of many people who lived in the little slum cottages and in the high-rise concrete flats in the houses of Newmarket and Ascotvale. We'd invested seven years of our lives in those people, and now the time had come to say goodbye. That night, amid many handshakes and hugs and tears, we said farewell. They prayed God's blessing upon us and they sang till we meet again. And in a couple of days' time, we'd fly to Sydney and get on that boat and go to America and start a new life in that strange land in Indianapolis. None of us knew the drama that would take place in the next two days. J.F. Kennedy would be shot. The boat would leave for America all right. 
It would take with us all of our possessions, our belongings, our luggage. All we'd be left behind was standing there with nothing except our money and toothbrushes. Our visa applications had been lost in that turmoil following the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I would never catch the boat. Our luggage and possessions would sail away. They'd cross the Pacific twice. It'd be two years before they came back to the temporary employment that was given me. And so a new chapter in my life was about to begin. Because without money, without clothes, without a job, without anything at all except what we stood up with in our toothbrush, I had to get a job. And the only place available was a small bush church in a community that had a large mental hospital where I would become the chaplain to that mental hospital and where I'd become the chaplain to the jail to all of Victoria's worst psychiatric murderers and I'd become a minister to the farmers. The pastor to the slums had completed his work. A new chapter of my life was about to begin. I was to become, rather unwillingly, a country parson. And I'll tell you about that next week. But I will never forget those people whom I used to farewell each Sunday night after the evening service when I'd head out into the heavy air with the wind blowing from the abattoirs and start my motorbike and head back to the College of the Bible where I had only just recently finished my training for the ministry thinking about my meeting with some of God's children in the slums of Newmarket. Thank you.